Amen. Thank you, Nick. Well, I'm uh, Monty McCullough. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Hill, and it's uh, my distinct joy and pleasure to share the Word of God with you this morning. Uh, a quick shout out and thank you to a couple of uh, co-workers that came here today. Uh, I'm extremely blessed, and my heart is full, so no pressure. Okay, so we're in the very long series entitled King Jesus, and the purpose of this series is to understand that our joy is found when we submit to Jesus as king over every part of our life. Now, the series is split into what we're calling four chapters, and we finished chapter one, and you'll see printed in your bulletin uh, the theological statements that came out of that. And, and chapter one was, was called The King Rejected. And um, in this series, um, we're constructing this theological backdrop that we, we hope to, to guide us. And so I want to read through these statements that we had real quick and kind of give you a, a quick synopsis just through chapter one. So in love, God created me not to be the center of my story. So what we're, God created us to worship him, for him to be the center of our stories. Yet we found out, our second theological statement, that in sin, what we have done is, in sin I have abused God, his creation, and others in order to be the center of my story. So when, through our sin, what we've done is we've rejected God, said, God, we want what you have, but we don't want you. Then in the third statement, we find there is no joy when I'm the center of my story. Find out that I'm, I'm full of all sorts of anxiety and, and, and troubles and, and worries. Then we came to the fourth statement, God will be the center of my story, whether I like it or not. Meaning, he is sovereign, he is holy, and for his creation, he will be the center. And um, every knee, as we understand through the scriptures, every knee will bow. Then, number five, we find out, I'm lost and I need help. I'm in a hole, I can't seem to get out of this. And, and something's wrong that I keep going to being the center of my own story so brings up the last one, which is my heart is sick and I need a new heart. So last week we saw how Alan used the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 to walk us through the progression of all the theological statements in chapter 1. And ultimately the awakening of the prodigal son to the fact that he was lost and he needed help. So now we're currently in chapter 2. And the, the name of chapter 2, we're calling it The King Redeems. First, the king rejected, then the king redeems. And so our first theological statement that, that we heard last week and we came up with, I would like for you all to read it with me out loud. And so um, here it is. God is eager to restore me to his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this time to share your word I ask, Father, that as we look into forgiveness, that you would uh, not only be present here in your Holy Spirit, but, Lord, you 
would fill our hearts to understand this fatherly love that runs to meet us, that is eager to restore us, and that, Lord, we would understand your forgiveness. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So I, I hope to help us understand what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. There are many false beliefs that we have about forgiveness as a culture. Because we have these false beliefs, we project them onto God and imagine his forgiveness in the same way that we give forgiveness. And if you remember the story of the prodigal son, it's one where the younger son decides he no longer wants to be in his father's house. I don't, I don't want you, I want your stuff. He asks his father for his share of the inheritance, and he goes off and squanders it on prostitutes and wild living. Then after he has lost it all, he finds himself having to take any job he can and is feeding pigs, a Jewish boy, feeding pigs, and is hungry. And he comes to the senses, and he decides to go home and ask his father to take him in as a hired servant. Now, one of the, the good points that, that Alan made last week in his sermon was that the fact that the son expected the father to hesitate when he, when he came back. He was preparing an appeal that would enable him to at least be a servant in his father's house. He was desperate. So he was probably thinking that this father would maybe listen, but after what he did... And how he treated his father, he was just taking his chances. He had no category in his head. He had no category for the forgiveness that awaited him. He had no category for a father who would run to meet him, embrace him, kiss him, ask for a robe to be thrown on him, ask for a ring to be put on his fingers, ask for sandals, ask for the fatted calf to be killed and throw a party. He had no category for this. I wonder sometimes if that's our problem. Do we have a category for forgiveness that will pay our debt on our behalf and call it finished? Understanding forgiveness rightly draws us close to God in love and does not cause us to lower our head in shame. Likewise, what I hope to show you is that understanding forgiveness that God gives and that he commands of us toward others is a freedom from bondage and a healing to our sick hearts. This healing starts with our understanding God's forgiveness. I, I have uh, three siblings, an uh, older sister and an older brother, and a younger sister, third in line. My parents had uh, my older sister, and then 13 months later, they had my, my older brother. And then 15 months later, they had me. And so that's boom, boom, boom in my mind. I had two boys three years apart. My younger sister came four years later. 
To this day, all of them say, I was the golden child. I was mom's favorite. Apparently, I could get away with more and do no wrong in her eyes. From their perspective, I did plenty wrong. And I remember my mother telling me to go outside and get a switch so she could whip me. Um, so I would go outside and walk down the street to Bobby's house and play with Bobby. <laughs> get a switch. And you're going to let me go outside? Do I look stupid? <laughs> well, the next thing I know, my mother has gone outside, picked her own switch, come down to Bobby's house. She knew where I was. I was nearly always barefoot and in shorts. We lived in South Texas. She would slap the back of my legs with that switch all the way home. I thought I could outrun her. I thought I was fast, but that switch just never stopped, so I guess she was fast enough. I had plenty of whippings as a child, most of them from my father. Wait until your father gets home. That line constantly in my ear. I'm not sure I know why my siblings ever thought I was the golden child. Well, later on, when I was in middle school, um, I can remember when I would have that adolescent attitude toward her. She would confront me when I was alone and come up to me and tell me that she was going to slap me. And if I blocked her or even flinched, she was going to do it again and again until I allowed it. Now, I'm not against a parent using discipline on their children just to ask my two boys. But this was not a reasoning with me or allowing me to apologize or even seeking to have me understand the weight of what I did. She would not ask me if I had any sort of understanding for what I had done wrong. My internal response, therefore, would normally be one of dislike and being more annoyed by her in whatever she was doing. This happened a few times, and even in high school. I'm not sure I ever shared it with my siblings. I still don't know to this day. I was disrespectful, and I did not care to be reconciled with her. I also did not forgive her. Later, in college, I would get a random call from her that would chew me up one side and down the other and say all kinds of accusations and hateful things. And, and she would just hang up a couple of times in tears. I, I called my dad and I asked him what it was about that I did to prompt the call. He never knew exactly and basically just said she would calm down and it would be okay. It wasn't okay with me. Later, after marriage... Uh, the learned response I had to confrontation was to just let it roll off like water on a duck's back. I would try, I would not try to understand. I would just wait for it to blow over and there would be no change in my ways. This was damaging to my marriage. 
And it took me a long time to realize the way I had become and realize that I was lost. I needed help. I had become the center of my story and I needed a new heart. You may be thinking, wait a minute, Monty. What, what are you talking about? What is it that you, why is it that you needed a new heart against that for your mother did? Listen to me. When I tell you that I found myself being unforgiving and that was turning my heart away from my mother. If I was being that way, my own entitled status was placing me above her and causing me to sin by not listening to God. I was excused in my mind. And you might think I was excused. This can be a process, this forgiveness can only be a process that not only turns your heart into a forgiving heart, but one that listens to the Lord and not the world. If there is truly a reason to be excused... Think about this. If it's truly a reason that you are excused, God will do that, won't he? If anybody knows, he does. I don't need to defend that. So when I started listening to the Lord because I was hearing the gospel through community, I realized I needed a new heart. Unforgiveness will cause us to become the center of our own story. We're called away from both of those. We're called away from unforgiveness, and we're called away from being the center of our own story. So I was convicted to try and talk with my mother, but she was not the kind of person who would sit down and talk. No lunches, no coffee times. If you had a conversation with her, it was a one-way street, and she was done when she got through. So I decided to write a tribute to my parents to try and show my appreciation in the way I had been challenged by the Lord to do. That was something that my parents basically had to listen to while I, while I read it. It was healing, but it was not a forgiving event in my heart. Eventually, my mother had cancer, and she was in hospice. The nurse said she was conscious and could hear. She was not able to talk, and she did not open her eyes. I found myself alone with my mother and the nurse at one point, and I asked the nurse if I could have some time alone with her. So I crawled up on the bed and sat beside her against the headboard. I took her hand, and I started to talk to her. I told her that I was taking advantage of a moment when she could hear and not interrupt what I was saying. I let her know that there were some things I wanted her to know. Things, things that, um, I'm sorry, I lost my place here. Things that I loved about her and to thank her for being my mother. And there were some things that I needed to forgive her for and things to ask her to forgive me for. By God's grace, I had this moment with my mother. I cried. I also laughed a little bit with some stories growing up. I let her know how God was healing my heart. And because of that, I was able to forgive and love her. She died that same day. What grace that was to allow me 
to tell her I love her and confirm the Lord's love for her at the same time. My heart was healed of a burden. Had I forgiven my mother before that point? When I look back, I don't believe I did. That event caused me to sit and consider words that I wanted to say in a Christ-like manner. I had to consider the grace that I had been given in order to extend grace. I heard a quote from Mike Kelsey. I, I believe it was Mike Kelsey. If it wasn't Mike Kelsey, it was Eric Saunders. I like listening to them both. But anyway, he said, those who have experienced the grace of God extend grace to others. Those who have experienced the grace of God extend grace to others. The truth in this statement is a reflection of understanding God's, God's forgiveness. Um, turn to Matthew 6, verse 7. We're going to read 7 through 15. This is a very familiar part of the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus. It's the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Don't be like them. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. One of the interesting things about this passage is, and I'm going to move on to verse 14. And I would like for you to notice that verse 14 starts with the word for. Don't pray like this. Pray like this. For, because... If you forgive others your trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus does not give an out from what he tells us here. If we do not forgive others, we will not be forgiven. But he does show us this, that when we address a holy God, hallowed be thy name, and ask for his kingdom to come on earth and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. For him to be the center of our story, we will be forgiving as he has been forgiving. He will give us the new heart that is like his. What is forgiveness? What are we being told to do here? Consider Ephesians 4:32. Paul says, "Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you." Here it is again from Paul. It's a command, but it is a command to do as God in Christ forgave you. This is the kind of forgiveness we are to give others. We are to forgive just as God did. God did it in Christ, meaning freely, sacrificially, in order to have you and me be able to draw near to God through Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, do you remember the curtain in the, in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from man? 
When Jesus died on the cross, do you remember that it was split in two from top to bottom? This was an act of God. The blood of Jesus is the atoning sacrifice that made men righteous and able to draw near to God. So we're being told to forgive in like manner. Not to forgive someone and then walk away, but inviting them to draw near. This is where I want to introduce our next theological statement. Statement number two in chapter two. Say this with me. Jesus gives of himself to forgive me. Jesus gives of himself to forgive me. I'm supposed to give in like manner. Forgiving is a giving act. Forgiving is resting in the finished work of the cross. It's also resting in the truth that God is the one who will deal with the other person's transgression. We're told to love even our enemies, giving grace as we have experienced grace. It's a one-way street. It only takes one person to be involved. That's the person forgiving. You can't forgive someone you can, I'm sorry, you can forgive someone. Um, I lost my place again, I'm sorry. It's a myth that you can't really forgive if the person doesn't ask to be forgiven. You can forgive someone you may never see again or who does not even believe they need to be forgiven. It's also a myth that forgiveness isn't real if you do not forget it, meaning if you remember the hurt, you must not have forgiven. It's also a myth that forgiving is reconciling or it isn't forgiveness. Forgiving and reconciling are two very different things. You may reconcile, but if not, forgiveness is still possible and commanded. Because we forgive doesn't necessarily mean we trust the other person with the same responsibility again, though. Hear that. But we will not hold the transgression in their debt if the debt is not relieved, forgiven, then it's not forgiveness. There are many ways we, we make people pay even after we've forgiven them. We're still holding that debt and we make them pay. I'm not going to send them a birthday card, not after what they did to me. I wouldn't go to that person's uh, retirement party. You know what they did to me? I've forgiven them, but I'm not going. Withholding love is a form of punishment, and therefore, we haven't released the debt. The person may have lost our confidence, but they still do a debt-free love. Look at me. There are many hurts in life that are hard. They make us bristle at the idea of forgiving the person. When these things happen, a part of us feels like it has died, and we want retribution and justice, don't we? Yes, we do. And we cry out, I was beaten, and you want me to forgive? My child was abused, and you want me to forgive? I was raped, or my wife was raped, and you want me to forgive? I'm supposed to forgive and just be a doormat? Look, you don't understand, and until you walk one mile in my shoes, you can't possibly understand what I'm going through and what I went through. No matter where you are 
in this process or this spectrum. Hurt and brokenness is a very real and it's not excused in any way through this message and God doesn't excuse it either. I want everyone, no matter where you are in this right now, to just take a breath. So let's take a breath on this idea and look at this process called forgiveness. Will you do that with me? Why does God tell us to forgive? In Matthew 18, Peter even asked Jesus how many times he has to forgive. Seven? And I take this question to almost be like, isn't once enough or twice And if if that's not what Peter's looking for, Peter's looking for a finite number that he can say, okay, at that point, I can take things into my own hands, right? And that's the way we think, isn't it? It is. (laughs) Why? So this is what Matthew 18, 21 and 22 says. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And this isn't a math problem for Jesus. He's not saying 77 times. He's saying, take that seven times and multiply it times 70. What his response is telling us is that there is no end to how often. There is no end to how often our Father in heaven forgives us. This can easily be seen just in your family or marriage, right? When we experience something that we need to forgive the other person for, it usually happens over and over again, even after forgiveness, does it not? I mean, even if they're minor offenses, the other person may not see it the same way you do, but the relationship needs forgiveness to flourish. Isn't that your experience? If it isn't forgiven over and over again, it will end up reaching a boiling point. And we all know where that goes. So why are we to forgive? In the study of James that we're doing during the summer, um, James 1, 14 and 15 says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Unforgiveness is like a cancer. One one has said before that it's like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. Unforgiveness turns into bitterness, and bitterness will turn into a crippling sin that Ephesians 4 is calling wrath, malice, and anger that does sin and grieves the Holy Spirit. And when bitterness is fully grown, it brings forth a heart that does not and cannot draw close to God. Forgiveness is a process. Without the seeking of God and his word, without remembering what he has done for you, without remembering what he did in order to know you and draw close to you, and being in loving community that represents that, you may not be able to progress to progress through the, the, this process well. Uh, Now, earlier, Terry came up and and, and read a long section of Genesis for us. Thank you, Terry. And it kind of sets up the Joseph story. We all know who Joseph in the coat of many colors. Um, But it's a longer story than that. If you thought that was long, I mean, I think this is maybe one of the longest stories in the whole Bible. But Joseph has been thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, 
He was framed and put in prison for a long, long time. And then he helped the cupbearer get out of prison. And the cupbearer said he would remember him and he forgot him for two years while he's in prison. And then all of a sudden he, he interprets a, 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 a dream for Pharaoh and Pharaoh catapults him to the top of the food chain and he's second in command to the most powerful man in the world. Turn with me to Genesis 45. Now, to set this up for you, his brothers are standing in front of him. And they're in front of this Egyptian, they think, who has the power to do whatever he wants with them. And they've been accused of stealing and spying. And his brothers do not know who Joseph is yet. These brothers are the ones responsible for selling Joseph into slavery. And Joseph has just seen Benjamin, his younger brother, for the first time. Genesis 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So all the Egyptian servants, they all left. And it was just Joseph and his brothers. No, so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the house of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is, is my father still alive? But his brothers, picture this, could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Oh, no. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. This is, this is going to be your part to participate. What did Joseph say? Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said... I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt to forgive. You don't have to forget. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve life. For you, a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you, many survivors. Different sermon, great sermon. <laughs> I'd love to do that one. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He did. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the, all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, who is alive by the way, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. This is the most lush land in Egypt at the time for, for herds. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me near me and your children these guys that sold me into Egypt your children and your children's children and your flocks your herds and all that you have there I will provide for you and there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all you have do not come to poverty and now He's talking to his brothers. Now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. 
Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And don't miss this, verse 15. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. This is Christ's forgiveness toward us. This is as good a depiction as I know. For everything that you and I have done to reject our king, by growing, going our own way and desiring to be our own God, Jesus says, I forgive you. Come near. I want you near me. I will provide for you. Do not be angry with yourselves because I hung on the cross for your sins. It is finished. You don't know what you were doing. I asked my father to forgive you. He wants you near. He has opened the door for you to come in and he has set a table for you. Say our theological statement with me again. Jesus gives of himself to forgive me. Jesus calls us to forgive without exception. He has called us to this because it is how he designed us to flourish. He is our king even over how we respond to those who hurt us. He wants us to be free of the bondage to crippling unforgiveness. It's okay to acknowledge the sin. Joseph acknowledged what his brothers had done. I was able to acknowledge what my mother had done. Pray that God will give you a compassion for those who have sinned against you. Joseph had to leave the room in an earlier story in part of Joseph. He had to leave the room when he had compassion for his brothers and he burst into tears with compassion upon seeing Benjamin. He kissed them all. I was able to sit and in true love and true forgiveness have compassion and forgiveness for my mother after having gone through a process of seeking the Lord. Were Joseph's brothers excused? No. Was my mother excused? No. But they are forgiven. This is grace that we have experienced. It's the grace that we're supposed to extend. When I observe the cross and see what my sin against God is paid for sufficiently by Jesus' blood, why would I conclude that another person's sin requires more than that? Why would I do that? Do I trust that the only sovereign God has declared what is sufficient? Do I trust that? To extend grace in the same manner that you have received it is to pay the debt on behalf of the other person. Jesus forgives, gives to forgive me. This is to relieve them of the burden to owe anything and leave the transgression to God to deal with. If the person is a believer, is not Christ's blood enough? If the person is not a believer, is God's wrath enough? Extend grace because you have received it. That's the glorious gift of holy, undeserved love. If anyone here has not experienced that grace in their lives and would like to receive it, God is eager to restore you to his kingdom. He says, come near. He does not say you need a different attitude before he wants you. 
He says, I will provide all you need, a new heart. He will remove your heart of stone and replace it. If there's anyone here who finds it difficult to forgive someone and you're laboring through the command to forgive and it's a burden that won't let go of you, we ask to be a place where you can process through this time and know that drawing close cures the heart. We'll have prayer ministers up front. We'll have Dan and Esperanza LeMay and Lori McCullough and Nick Jones up front afterwards if you need somebody to pray with or just hold a hand. But I want to leave us with this reality that Jesus gives of himself to forgive me. And he tells us to forgive, but only as we draw close. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that just continues to give. We understand that your son gave of himself freely. He could have come off the cross he had the power to do that, but he chose to stay on and, and, and give of himself to forgive us. We thank you for that, Lord. I ask that you just strengthen our hearts, that our hearts would be not only changed to hearts of flesh, but they would be changed to desiring to follow you in the sense of just relieving ourselves of the burden of unforgiveness. Father, I ask for healed hearts. I ask for you to not only... Uh, give us the ability to forgive, Lord, but fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit in such a way that we follow easily. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.